Hello, I'm Jessica Powers. And I'm Laura Webster. On this special episode of Brief Tapes, we are celebrating International Women's Day and Women's History Month. The theme of this year's International Women's Day is Choose to Challenge. There are two aspects to this. Firstly, seeking out and celebrating women's achievements. And secondly, challenging and calling out gender bias. Jessica and I will kick off with the former. We are heavily indebted to the first 100 years, a groundbreaking charity project charting the journey of women in law since 1919. Their website is fantastic with a host of resources, including a timeline and biographies of female trailblazers. Then, in the second half of the podcast, I'll be joined by Michelle Green, our Deputy Senior Clerk, to discuss the challenges which continue to be faced by women at the bar today and what we can all collectively do to face those challenges head on. But first, Laura, I think you're going to take us back to 1873. Yes, I have delved into the Lincoln's Inn Black Books, which record the minutes of the inn's governing body of benches. At a benches council on the 18th of February, 1873, the benches of Lincoln's Inn considered a petition signed by 92 ladies, including Maria Georgina Gray, the founder of the Women's Education Union, asking for permission to attend lectures. The petition was adjourned over to a council on the 11th of March 1873. At that council, it was resolved that it was not expedient that women should be admitted to the lectures of the professors appointed by the Council of Legal Education. Fast forward a few years to 1891 um, and sticking with the Black Books, they record that one Miss Day had applied to become a student of Lincoln's Inn with a view to obtaining a certificate to practice as a conveyancer under the bar so not as a barrister. However, the response she received from the masters of the bench was that they were, and I quote, not aware of any case where a certificate to practice has been granted to a lady, and they asked her to produce an example of such precedent, which of course she was not able to do, so her application was refused. Just over 10 years later, Gray's Inn received the first application from a woman to be admitted to an inn of court expressly for the purpose of being called for bar. That application was made by Bertha Cave. Bertha Cave was born in Seven Oaks, Kent in 1881 and was a daughter of a butler. Given her working class background and her gender, it's extraordinary that she had the ambition and the confidence to seek to become a barrister. In her application, she wrote, I'm aware that my application is most unusual and no doubt without precedent, but trust that the masters of the bench will give it their serious consideration and I should, in the event of a favorable reply, be pleased to conform to any special rules that they think fit to impose. Her application was first considered at a meeting of the benches of Gray's Inn on the 13th of March 1903. It was supported by two masters, but was adjourned for further consideration by the Pension Committee. On the 24th of April 1903, the Pension Committee decided that the regulations on details of dress and exercise indicated that males, and males alone, were admissible as students of the inn. Bertha Kay's application was therefore refused. Her incredible story continues because she appealed that decision. Unrepresented, she presented her case before a group of judges in the Moses Room of the House of Lords on the 2nd of December 1903. Her arguments relied upon the existence of female lawyers in other countries. She was met with the counter-argument that there was no precedent for admitting women to the bar. Her appeal was sadly rejected. As a footnote to her story, it was reported in the press in November 1904 that Bertha Cave had attempted to represent her father in a civil dispute concerning a claim on a guarantee. She appeared in court robed and attempted to sit in council's benches. However, when she stood up to make an application on her father's behalf, 
Miss Lister on the other side interjected with the words, I am sorry, but I feel bound to object to the lady being heard from council's benches. On the 2nd of January 1904, Christabel Pankhurst, a suffragette and daughter of Emmeline Pankhurst, applied to Lincoln's Inn to be admitted as a member. The Masters of the Bench refused her application on the 11th of January 1904. The First World War thankfully led to a sea change in societal perceptions of women and the ability of women to enter professions previously closed to them. In 1919, a number of bills were introduced with the aim of removing barriers to women's entry into such professions. And finally, in December of that year, the landmark Sex Discrimination Removal Act was passed. Within 48 hours of the Act receiving royal assent, the first woman was admitted to an inn of court, Middle Temple in that case. That woman was Helena Normanton. We could devote an entire podcast to Helena Normanton. The list of firsts that she achieved in her career are unparalleled. The first woman to practice as a barrister in England, the first married British woman to have a passport in her maiden name, the first woman to obtain a divorce for her client, the first woman to lead the prosecution in a murder trial, first woman to conduct a trial in America, the first woman to appear in both the High Court and the Old Bailey, and one of the first two women to take silk at the English bar, along with Rose Heilbronn. And her legacy lives on. In 2019, Normanton Chambers became the first barrister's chambers to be named after a woman. And in 2020, the first legal outfitter dedicated to female courtwear was set up with the name Ivy and Normanton. The Ivy is in honour of Dr Ivy Williams, who was the first woman called to the bar in May 1922. Perhaps less well known, but equally extraordinary, is Mithan Tata. She was the first woman called for bar at Lincoln's Inn on the 26th of January 1923. She was also the first Indian woman to be called for bar and the first female barrister to practice in India. Together with her mother, Herabai, Mithan Tata was instrumental in the Indian suffrage movement. She went on to be the first female professor of law in India and the first woman to be made sheriff of Bombay. Laura, you've already mentioned Rose Harbrun. Like Helena Normanton, she was also a woman of many firsts. In 1936, she was the first woman to be awarded a scholarship at Gray's Inn. She was the first woman to lead in a murder case defending the gangster George Kelly. She was the first female recorder. She was the first female judge of the Old Bailey. And she was the first female treasurer of Gray's Inn. I'd also like to mention Stella Thomas. She was a member of Middle Temple and was the first black African woman called for bar in England in 1933. The West African Student Association celebrated her call with this announcement in the press. We are pleased to avail ourselves of the privilege to publish here the first female Ogoni Agba, who recently passed her final bar examination. Miss Thomas is to be the first lady barrister in the whole of West Africa. She enrolled in the Sierra Leone Bar and the Nigerian Bar in 1935 and practiced from Lagos. In 1943, she was appointed as a magistrate and was therefore the first Nigerian woman appointed to the bench. Moving forward a few years again, 1962 saw Elizabeth Lane appointed as the first female judge in the county court. She went on in 1965 to be the first woman appointed as a high court judge. She is credited with introducing your ladyship as a form of address after previously being addressed as my lord for years. In 1974, Barbara Calvert and three other women set up Four Brick Court, it became known as the Monstrous Regiment of Women. 
Barbara Calvert was the first female head of chambers and the first female QC to take a case for the European Court of Human Rights. Upon her appointment as reader of Middle Temple in 2001, she concluded her lecture by answering the titular question, sex, does it really matter, as follows. Yes, in your private lives, but no longer in your professional lives. There is no height a woman cannot scale. Remarkably, it wasn't until 1991 that the first black woman was appointed Queen's Council. Patricia Scotland took silk at 35 and was therefore the youngest person to do so in over 200 years. She received a life peerage in 1997, becoming Baroness Scotland of Astral, and thereafter had and continues to have a successful political career. She was the first female Attorney General and was the first woman to hold her current post as Secretary General of the Commonwealth of Nations. 2017 was a momentous year in terms of female representation in the judiciary. For the first time, the Supreme Court had two female judges, Lady Black and Lady Hale, and a female president in Lady Hale. One year later, Lady Arden was appointed for Supreme Court, and Reedeeb was the first case to have a majority female panel in the Supreme Court. Sadly, we are now in a position where the Supreme Court once again only has one female judge, Lady Arden although it has very recently been announced that Lady Justice Rose will join the Supreme Court on the 13th of April 2021. Thank you, Laura, for joining me on that whistle-stop tour through over 100 years of legal history, highlighting just a few of the incredible women that have gone before us, paving the way for women, including us, to have successful careers at the bar. I am now delighted to be joined by Michelle Green. Hi, Jess. So can I start with a very easy question, because I know we have listeners across the world and they're not necessarily familiar with the Barristers Chamber set up in England and Wales. So could you tell us what a Barristers Clerk does? So traditionally, a Barristers Clerk manages a Barristers practice. We organise their diaries, the court dates are booked in, we organise conferences, negotiate fees and liaise with the court. However, this role now includes recommending Barristers for cases, developing their practices, maintaining client relationships and also attending marketing events to promote chambers. I knew I was going to ask that question and so I did a bit of research online and the first hit was a Bloomberg article from a few years ago called The Exquisitely English and Amazingly Lucrative World of London Clerks. That article referenced a 1983 book by the legal sociologist John Flood which is called Barristers Clerks The Law's Middleman. It is somewhat of an eye-opening book, so if I could just read a short passage to you. Most clerks are white British males, and the standard role for women has been that of a laundress or cleaner. However, since 1945, their status has improved. Women are generally viewed as suitable for menial tasks like typing and carrying messages, but they are sometimes promoted to the level of first junior clerk. Very few have ever become senior clerks. The prevalent feeling is that women do not fit in the smoking room atmosphere of the temple. The view is even held that they are less intelligent and capable than men. But among the younger, more politically motivated members of the bar, the view is gaining force that women may actually make better clerks because they are less bound by tradition and conservatism. Does any of that still ring true? No, I'm glad to say that most of it doesn't ring true. Some women may start off in what are perceived as typically female roles, but everyone has to start somewhere. I joined New Square Chambers as receptionist, and now I'm Deputy Senior Clerk, Clerk and Barristers who knew me as receptionist. Over the years, I've proved that I was capable and deserving of each role I was given, which is how it should work, regardless of gender. 
I do believe that women in the parking profession have had to work that bit harder to prove themselves. And I think the various roles they have outside of their careers allows them to think outside the box, to think 10 steps ahead instead of five. And that women most definitely bring a different viewpoint to the table, which should be utilized rather than seen as taken over or being better. To a certain degree, a tradition, a tradition does need to be upheld, but just because something has worked for the past 25 years doesn't mean that it can't be improved upon. You gave us a little glimpse there of your route to becoming deputy senior clerk. So tell me a bit more about your career and where you, how you've got to where you are now. So I finished university and my dad just said, go out there and find a job. So I, I joined a recruitment agency in Holborn and they put me forward to go along to this set of chambers and interview for the temporary receptionist role, which I did. And I was given the role. The receptionist then didn't come back to work after her maternity leave ended and I was taken on full time. So that was my first glimpse into the world of the bar which was a completely new experience for me, and very unique as well. And I got to know the barristers and I got to know the clerks and how things worked. Two years later, I felt that I needed to move on and do something else. One of the first junior clerks knew that I was looking for a new job and he spoke to the senior clerk. And coincidentally, at that point, there was a clerk leaving. And so I went into the clerk's room and 18 years later, I'm still there. I was quite lucky with my first clerk's room. You know, there were four white men in this room and in walked me and we had to adapt. A clerk's room then was very different to a clerk's room now. And I do have to say that I was very, very lucky with the men that were in that room. I think if, if my experiences with clerking were negative at that point, I don't think I'd be where I am today. As a woman of colour in a senior clerking role, do you think you're probably still the exception rather than the rule? Not now, no. When I first started, I was definitely the exception. There were few female clerks and even fewer non-whites, and I'm glad to say that this is now changing. Clerking is still a relatively unknown profession and not one that was ever widely advertised. It used to be a word-of-mouth profession. You knew someone who was a clerk or your dad was a clerk, and that's how you started your career. So based on word of mouth, if clerks are mainly male and white, it's not unreasonable to say that junior clerks applying for jobs were also male and white. Clerking was perceived as a male profession. There were no qualifications to become a clerk. You simply started as a court runner, a junior clerk, carrying books back and forth to sports. And it was felt that the physical demands of the job could only be fulfilled by men. Today, the number of female clerks, I'm very pleased to say, is on the rise, including our very own Billy Joe. So I think it's safe to say that in 10 years time, the number of women in senior clerking positions will definitely increase. Do you think there is more that could be done to increase diversity in the clerk's room? This has already started. It just needs to be built upon. And I think one way to achieve this is to advertise vacancies through mainstream recruiters rather than those that target chambers. The balancing of home life, especially childcare, is difficult. And I think that whilst female clerks may be on the rise now, Chambers need to be more flexible in terms of working hours and working days if they are to retain female clerks. And prior to lockdown, working at home was literally unheard of. I think lockdown has proved that our jobs can be done just as well from home as from a clerkroom. Our current clerkroom at New Square is a perfect example of how far diversity has come in our profession. I want to move on now to the position of female barristers and the interrelation between female barristers and the clerk's room. 
The Chantry Bar Association recently published a report called Voices of Women at the Chantry Bar, which follows a number of roundtable sessions that were held during 2019. That report notes that male-dominated clerks' rooms are and continue to be perceived as a real problem, that there weren't many female clerks and should be more, and that in the clerks' room, old habits, old preconceptions and uninformed assumptions die hard. Going back to John Flood's book, he set out the apparently generally held view of clerks in the 1980s, that female barristers were useful for family law work, divorces or cases involving children, but not heavy criminal or financial ones. He quotes a clerk who said... Women aren't physically or emotionally suited to the bar. They're not as robust as men. There's obviously some parallels between that book and what is said in in the very recent report. But from your perspective, do you think that those kind of attitudes still persist amongst clerks? And if so, how can they be tackled? Again, I can only really speak for our clerks room. I personally don't see how it can be as clerks are held more accountable now than when I first started clerking nearly 20 years ago. The quote regarding women not being seen as physically or emotionally suited to the bar as they are not robust. Well, in my view, that's just antiquated and just shouldn't exist in the modern classroom. Again, I can't speak for all sets, but it certainly doesn't exist in ours. I'd like to think that in the four decades or so that have passed since that book was written, those views are long gone. If these attitudes do still exist, I think it's time Chambers Management address them. Simple as that. Late last year, there was a quite interesting article in Council magazine about language bias at the bar, which followed on from a study in the description of footballers and what adjectives were associated with footballers of a particular race, for example. The article in Council quoted from a judgment of uh, Lady Justice Arden, as she then was, in a case back in the early 2000s called Hobson and London Borough of Hackney. In her judgment, she said, Stereotypical language is one facet of the exhibition of gender bias. A person who uses stereotypical language about a woman may well trivialise her achievements and talents and underestimate her ability. Many women are as effective in their posts as any male equivalent. However, their credibility is a problem if they are undermined by discriminatory behaviour against them. Thus, it is important in my judgement to treat subconscious assumptions in language seriously. We see this problem insofar as it is a problem quite a lot in the directories in the way that women are described as compared to men. I just wondered from your perspective, are clerks still getting coded requests from solicitors for male barristers using adjectives like heavyweight or aggressive or ferocious cross-examiner or whatever it might be? I'm aware that this still exists, but it's not prevalent in my experience. Certainly in my career, I've had more clients ask if a barrister is Oxbridge educated. This is not to say that it's not widespread, but I think it's an issue that needs to be addressed within a classroom as to how to respond to such coded requests. I would say that from my experience, these coded words are generational, and I think they are being used less and less. Closely associated with language is image. And as I think a lot of our listeners will know, the former leader of the Bar Council found himself in hot water last year for endorsing on Twitter the view of a deceased judge that even if you don't know any law, you can at least look like a barrister. His critics accused him of promulgating the view that barristers are white, male and posh. 
anecdotally or otherwise, do you think there is still a resistance amongst professional or probably more likely lay clients to instructing, for example, a young female barrister, particularly one who might have an accent or be from a working class background? Well, I think this particular issue is less to do with gender and more to do with perceived social standings in general. I haven't experienced resistance, but that's not to say that it doesn't happen. I was once told a story of a barrister commenting on a male pupil's accent and how the barrister thought it would hinder their career in the future. Today, that pupil, now a fully fledged barrister, is currently thriving in practice. Much of these stereotypes come from within the bar itself. And as new generations of barristers start their careers, I do believe that these stereotypes will eventually die out. The Voices report that I mentioned that the Chantry Bar Association released last month highlights pervasive concerns that assumptions, stereotyping and bias, especially affinity bias, is tainting the allocation of work. That report explores the concept of men's work, which it defines as big commercial and fraud cases, and women's work, which it describes as being, and I quote, the kind of clever but less well-paid work, and the preference in a related issue for men to work with men in legal teams. Do you think a fair allocation of work policy being implemented in the clerk's room is enough to resolve these issues, or do they go beyond that? I think if the policy is implemented correctly, then then yes. You know, we currently adhere to the BSB guidelines on fair allocation of work. And in our clerk's room, we put forward two or three barristers based on the client's specification, i.e. experience, availability. Um, And gender really does not play a role in our recommendations. If a client specifically asks for a male barrister, we delicately put forward those with the correct experience, regardless of gender. And then it's down to the client to choose. We can't control who they instruct, but we can ensure that we are being fair to all. Obviously, one of the biggest issues at the bar, particularly for women, is the big R, retention. The Chancery Bar Association carried out a study back in July 2017, and that found that around 15 years call, about 28% of women were leaving the Chancery Bar Association, and therefore presumably the bar, compared to about 9% of men. Is that different borne out in your experience, and why do you think that so many women leave the bar at that kind of level of call? Well, I wouldn't say that was my experience. I've I've known two women to leave the bar, both for different reasons. Personally, I believe the main reason is having children. In my personal experience, the primary caregiver role falls on the mother. So juggling children, childcare, school and running a household generally falls to a woman. Now, I do appreciate that men are playing a bigger role. But the reality is the demand of being a self-employed barrister is enormous. And sustaining a practice is sometimes insurmountable when you have children. Retention of female barristers is dependent on so many factors, chambers, clerks, home life setup, and I think in particular home support. Certain cases require long hours, last minute hearings, and female barristers with heavy home commitments need to decide if they can commit to a case and make time for it. The clerks will understand either way. I do recommend that if you're in that situation to express your worries and concerns to your clerk so we can help you find the best way forward. But we are also conscious that if a client doesn't get what they want from us, they can easily go elsewhere. So I think along with Clark and Home Support, this particular issue in relation to female retention at the bar is an issue for the wider legal community in general. I think what was quite interesting about the Chancery Bar report 
is that it seemed to place less emphasis on having children and maternity type commitments being the reason why so many women leave the bar and it highlighted things like imposter syndrome, stress levels, loneliness as potentially affecting women more. I don't know if that's right, I think I'm minded to agree with you Michelle that the fact that so many women leave at 15 years school must be indicative of that's the time mid-30s when women are, are going off to have children. I think there is more scope at the Chancery Bar than, say, for example, at the Criminal Bar when you're in court more. I think it is easier to have a home life around a self-employed career at the Bar. I think it's an insurmountable problem and I don't know what the solution is. It's common across a lot of professions, probably particularly noticeable in this career because you're self-employed and you don't have the support of good maternity pay and sick leave and holiday pay and all of that. Absolutely. These situations that I've commented on in this podcast need to be addressed internally within each set itself. If it's made clear that these attitudes will not be tolerated and not acceptable, then change for the better is inevitable. I think from everything that we've discussed today, it is clear that the bar has come a long way in 100 years. However, we can't celebrate the achievements of women at the bar without acknowledging that challenges still exist. Women continue to be underrepresented in the senior judiciary and the Bar Council's research released in November last year states that more female and BAME barristers practice in lower paid areas of law with male barristers earning more than female barristers in all but one practice area, which was family children work. We hope that you, like us, will continue to choose to challenge. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.